Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our program, Powering the American Dream, a conversation with Harold Hamm. Please welcome Dr. Kevin Roberts, president of the Heritage Foundation. Thanks. Great to see all of you here. And those of you who joined online, we're grateful for our friends at C-SPAN for being here, too. This is a special conversation about the American dream. And it is an American dream that not only has been fulfilled and charted by our friend Harold Hamm, who's written this truly wonderful book, Game Changer, something he and I will talk about briefly, but in that, the lessons that every American, no matter where they're from, what their background is, what language their people spoke, how long their family's been in the United States, can achieve. And Lord knows, given all the challenges in the country, Given the interference of government in the daily lives of Americans, this is a resoundingly good story to tell. So it is a great pleasure for all of us at Heritage to have Mr. Ham here. From this Southerner, speaking about this other Southerner, it is just a pleasure to welcome this rural Oklahoman. Harold went to work in the oil fields as a teenager and then established Continental Resources at the age of 21. He built a grassroots startup into a top 10 oil producer and the largest privately held oil company in the United States. As a voice for America's oil and natural gas industry, he's helped to make America energy independent. He co-founded and serves as executive chairman of the Domestic Energy Producers Alliance, and he is widely recognized as the person who led the charge to lift America's 40-year ban on U.S. crude oil exports. Vital, of course, not just for the men and women in the energy business, but for all of us and for every human on planet Earth. That's what we're gonna talk about today. I'll highlight one other aspect of Harold's life, and then I know he will wanna to cut to the chase and talk about the book. And that is that he is very involved in his community. He has been a leader in promoting health, education, energy industry advocacy. He's devoted much time and many resources to championing a healthy and secure future for all Americans, having invested and donated many efforts to find a cure for diabetes. He's also donated the seed capital to start two schools of engineering, one at the University of Mary in Bismarck, North Dakota, and another at the University of North Dakota itself. I could spend a lot of time talking about all of the awards that Harold has won and he has deserved. But I'll just leave it with this one, sort of an informal award from the Heritage Foundation, which is that he is a great American, one of the wonderful patriots of this age, because he understands initiative and liberty and the importance of strong family and communities before you even get to that word, government. So would you please join me in welcoming our friend, Harold Hamm. Welcome. Thank you. You bet. Good to be here with you. Well, thanks. You know, against your better judgment, you're uh, in the Imperial City of D.C. for a day, but we're grateful that you are. And you've got a lot of friends in the audience. As I, I mentioned, Harold, we have a, also a large online audience. Our friends at, at C-SPAN are broadcasting this. And uh, we're just grateful that an everyday American would show up here to talk about the American dream. So I grew up, as I told you a little while ago, in a family of roughnecks in Lafayette, Louisiana, the blue collar side of the business, which you know well too. And so I'm reading your book, I'd finished it last night, and I told to my wife and kids at dinner, I said, this is a book you have to read. And, and you know, audience members at Heritage sort of expect me to say that, I really do mean it. It, it is something that all of you should read, we have copies for you or at least first come, first serve after this conversation. But all of that to say, Harold, what inspired you to write the book at this point in your life? Well, first of all, I felt like it was a story that had to be told. You know, it's, uh, it's so misunderstood, uh, so much confusion around it. Uh, what did give us the energy renaissance in America? 
We were on this steep decline in production. Both oil and gas was going downhill. And everybody called it terminal decline. Just going to be produced out. That was it. Found a fair thing to be found. And then all of a sudden, big up, upturn in production and oil and gas. And what did that come from? It came from one thing, and that was horizontal drilling. The ability to drill down two miles, turn right, and go another two miles. Nobody thought, well, thought that was possible. Nobody in their business thought that was possible. But we did that, and with that much wellbore exposure to 12, 15 feet of the reservoir, suddenly you had two miles. So you had a million times the productive capacity that you had with that reservoir in 10, 12 feet. And it's, it was a game changer. All of the oil-saturated reservoirs in America that had low porosity and low perm, you could turn on with this technology. And it did. And, you know, the first ever horizontal oil field drilled in the world, Continental was drilling that. <laughs> and us and one other company was on companies that ever drilled a well in it. And, you know, we didn't even uh, use any kind of wellbore stimulation. You just drill the wellbore, and that was it. It produced. Wouldn't produce vertically, but it produced horizontally. And it was just a game changer. Nobody even wanted to participate in this first field. Sure. Everybody there was like, they bailed. If they had ownership in the, in the uh, properties up there, well, they'd farm it out to you or sell it to you or something, they wouldn't participate. They thought it was a money pit. And I wondered if it was too when we began, uh, but it turned out. But it, it, was a, it was a wonderful story. And, you know, over the next 10 years, uh, we tripled uh, American oil and gas production. And it's been a, it's been a wonderful thing. And, and so many people have been involved. And, and this is a story of, like, your family, the roughnecks, the, the people that uh, is out there, all those blue-collar workers that uh, have made it happen, that figured it out really from the iron standpoint, uh, from the driller's knowledge, how to do that, how to, how to turn, turn sideways and, and uh, you know, get it to go where you wanted, to, where you wanted it to go, not the other direction. And which is to, no small feat. Yeah, which no, not a small feat. Without getting hung up in a hole and all those things, stay in zone, you know, for two miles out there. And, and and make it produce, and so any, anyway, all of that had to be told. I knew it had to be told. I hope somebody else would tell it. Nobody did. So finally, it just became incumbent upon me to to do that. And uh, it took a long while, but put in this book, and you know, uh, you know, I feel very humble to be the person that uh, that did that. And I'm very glad to have it done. <laughs> glad to have it out. And uh, like you, I hope a lot of people read it and understand our business. So there have been a lot of disparagers along the way. A lot of people that saw what we were doing and, uh, you know, uh, didn't want to see that. Didn't want to see uh, U.S. Uh, come back in with a lot of oil and gas production. No, they wanted to see your industry just completely go away. They wanted to see the demise of it. They wanted to see the demise of us. They uh, looked at us as conservative business people, uh, and, which we are for the most part. We can't deny it. We're conservative business people. We, we have no problem with that at the Heritage Foundation. <laughs> I'm not going to apologize for it. Don't. <laughs> so, and anyway, uh, uh, they, along the way, they, a lot of people uh, sought to disparage, downright lie about what we were doing, how we were doing. We're just going to end up uh, polluting all the water in the world. Uh, you know, we're going to uh, do all these bad things, none of which has happened. So I want to ask a question about the, the business side of things before we talk a little bit about 
the impact for everyday people around the world based on the game-changing uh, nature of, of horizontal drilling. And, and that is the, the nature of entrepreneurship. I mean, it's you got to take risks in order to reap benefits. And the material benefit of entrepreneurship, of taking that risk, of course, is money. But as you'd explain well in the book, it's more than about money. We'll get into that too. But this is, this is a question. It seems as if that when you, you're drilling that first well using horizontal drilling, I'm just going to assume up to that point that was the biggest risk you had taken in your life. And how long did it take for you to realize that all that capital you invested, you know, you use a poker metaphor, you put all your chips into the table, that you realized, oh, this risk is going to pay off? Well, it, it uh, certainly, those first, first few wells, uh, some of which was disasters. <laughs> You know, you got hung up in a hole, you, you know, missed the zone, did get in. Uh, so, you know, it, it just didn't work. Uh, so a lot, a lot of those were. And, uh, you know, it, it took a lot of while, long, long time to do some of this. It, it, it wasn't easy. And uh, people, some people did think, well, that's a money pit. We're going to avoid that. Uh, but it wasn't fashionable uh, to be doing what we were doing at all. So it took some time to answer your question. It took some time to realize that, wow, this, we're getting better at it. We're going to be able to make this work. Uh, started out drilling 1,000 feet out. First thing was drilling 2,500 feet. First thing we could drill a mile. Uh, first thing we could drill two miles. And all the times those economics were changing and getting better and we were getting better at what we did uh, but you know we it was uh, I talk about it in the book uh, talk about crude <laughs> implements uh, tools that we were uh, using I called them clunky even uh, you know the uh, belly assemblies and that that we were using to kick off and and turn 90 degrees mm -hmm. and uh, it, it it was clunky uh, you know, after the invention of mud motors and all these things, it got a lot easier. Uh, but that came later. And we, we had some of the uh, primary uh, service providers uh, that we, we said, you know, we need near-bit technology where we can stay in zone. We need the research done to, to give us those tools that we need. Had one of them tell me, uh, after I gathered up four or five of them, uh, tell, tell them what we needed. One of them took me aside and said, look, Mr. Ham, said, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, but this is such a novel idea you've got here, this horizontal drilling, said, we just can't afford to spend any research dollars on it. Another risk of business yeah. innovation, right? Yeah, too, too much risk. And I said, well, I'll tell you one thing, we're going to use somebody, and whoever we use, they're going to get all of our business. It's a good response, Harold. I think that was effective. So we did. Three years later, that same guy had to go buy them to get the technology <laughs> that they had advanced. So anyway, been some funny things happened along the way. There's some young entrepreneurs in the audience, I, I happen to know, and no doubt there are some who are, who are watching online. There's a lesson there, which is to <laughs> stick to your guns. But uh, also, I'd, I'll just take this wonderful story that you've told about your business and horizontal drilling. And, and make the obvious application that I'm sure our audience friends have done to any industry, right? Which is that one of the things that it seems as if culturally, socially, maybe also especially in terms of policy, we've gotten away from in the United States is understanding the importance of innovation from individuals, from individual companies. The amount of capital it takes to make that work because of the trial and error, especially in your business. And also that sometimes you're gonna fail. And that's, and that's the cost of risk. Oil and gas industry is probably the best at, at exemplifying that United States. That is that, that cycle of, of boom and bust, which certainly growing up in a family of roughnecks, I remember well. But I, I want to shift gears only slightly and move from the perspective of, of your business and maybe our perspective at Heritage about amplifying the good work of, of great individual corporations and talk about the impact of horizontal drilling on the quality of life, not just for Americans, but for, I would posit, billions, billions of people in the world. 
Is that a fair yes. topic? Yeah, no, a fair topic for sure. Uh, you know, for instance, uh, when we broke the code in the, in the Bakken, uh, this was a very hard shale. And, this uh, is in North Dakota? North Dakota. And uh, it, it was not, a, not an easy thing to do. It's Montana, North Dakota. That's really, really where it began. And, uh, and anyway, it, it was almost impossible to break the code and make this produce economically. Uh, it, and it took a lot of trial and error. <laughs> you mentioned it earlier. But once we did, this was the finest high quality oil you ever seen in your life. And it had a lot of the middle distillates that you need for particularly for kerosene diesel production. And in fact, everybody will remember when diesel got so high, and it is like $450, $5 a gallon. And anyway, that brought on so much of this fuel uh, with the middle distillates that diesel went to two, $225 a gallon, so half, uh, and did it fairly quickly. This around 2010. And uh, wow, that, that was a huge change because everything up to that point, a lot of the, lot of the uh, product that was being refined was the heavy bitumen for, from Canada. All the refineries had been outfitted basically to, to deal with this endless supply of bitumen, heavy oil from Canada. But it didn't have much metal distillates, uh, so it produced gasoline, but not the middle distance that you need for diesel. And so that, along with almost innumerable consequences of, of the Bakken discovery, the new innovation, has really contributed to alleviating what we call energy poverty. Explain that for our audience who may be, some may be a little less familiar with that. Well, it's gone, uh, particularly on the oil side, uh, you know, we've uh, uh, been able to basically get away from dependence on the Middle East almost entirely uh, due to what we're producing, and on the natural gas side, even more so. Uh, so suddenly, you know, we became almost awash with na natural gas. And then, of course, the second, third th part of that is all of the LNG that's produced uh, as a result of all the natural gas. So, for instance, last winter would have got probably real cold, uh, you know, once the uh, Ukrainian uh, invasion happened uh, by Russia, and Russia cut off the supplies to Europe. Had it not been for LNG supplies that the U.S. was able to ship, I was told by a friend of mine that uh, one cargo of uh, LNG would heat a million homes for a month. One. That one company shipped, I think he said 638 last winter. So you think about that, the difference that it can make around the world. And this is, you know, clean burn natural gas. If it does the same thing in those countries that it did here, you know, it could offset a whole lot of pollution. Uh, America, with clean burning natural gas, uh, we're, we've cleaned up our air. We have the cleanest air in the world today. And back to the 70s level of pollution as a result. Uh, so perhaps we can do that on around the world. And yet, in, in spite of the, the data on that, it's just an objective truth about the cleanliness of, of American natural gas. The American oil and gas industry has, has had a, a difficult time, unfortunately, penetrating this, this, this image of wind turbines and solar panels being as pure as the wind-driven snow. Why is that? Why, why have both businesses, and I'm talking, about, I'm talking about the independent producers like you, and even policy groups like, like Heritage, while we've had some limited success in talking about that, why has it been so difficult to penetrate that story? Well, there's a whole, a whole other element, if you will, say it like that, that uh, want to see that come on because they want that market share of, uh, of generation. So you're saying it's about money. It's all about money. <laughs> you have to follow the dollars, and, and there's so much dollars going out. Uh, talking about one solar company in existence uh, today, 
uh, their market cap is $10.5 billion, 95% uh, of that revenue is from subsidies. 95% of that is from subsidies. Now you think about that. Where's that come from? It's, it's, a, it's a publicly traded company, right? We all own yes. it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's all you. That's right. Uh, that's where it comes from. So uh, is it uh, kind of unfair? Uh, then, you know, we've had government weigh in and uh, on that side as well with all the subsidies, both for solar, wind, all those things. And, you know, they're just going to put them in for a while, get them started, and then that's going to go away, right? Wrong. They're still there. Well, they'd be there for a long time, probably. That's the amazing thing about government subsidies and government agencies. It's hard to get rid of either of them. <laughs> <clears throat> but we're going to keep trying, Harold. I can tell you that. One other policy question, if I may, before reading a couple of passages in the book that I think that audience really appreciate, and those are more about kind of life principles. And that policy question is only until recently, I would say only until the last year or so, has the relationship between America losing its energy independence on purpose, I mean, this is the design of the current regime in the White House, been connected to the Chinese Communist Party benefiting from that. Explain for this audience that connection and why it's so important from a national security standpoint for America to have energy independence. Well, we had just gotten uh, 2019, uh, September I believe it was, uh, totally energy independent. Um, you know, we were producing more than uh, we're bringing in. Uh, that's, a, that's what that means. And so, wow, celebrate that, right? Uh, and, you know, we're energy independent. We don't have to be reliant on anyone. And now suddenly, going the other direction with all the push on EVs, you're totally dependent for all the precious all the metals that go into them, cobalt, uh, lithium, all those sorts of things, 85% of which comes from China for those batteries. Right back in the box again for dependence. You know, uh, they locked it up. They, they, they own that. Uh, so 85% uh, dependence again on someone else that you have no control over that probably don't like you that well. Uh, and, you know, they, they got uh, their hands on your neck, perhaps, <laughs> going That's a good forward. good way of putting it. Yeah. So. Let's talk a little bit about a couple of passages in the book, and then we'll, we'll get into some audience questions. And I'm just going to read a short paragraph here, if you don't mind. Uh, this, is, this is about it's a, a clause or passage about it's never about the money. You write, my why is always about so much more than money. More than 50 years ago, I left one of the best paying union jobs with a major oil company to start a one man, one truck oil field service company. I had what I felt like a ton of debt and what felt like a ton of ambition too. Yet I was fueled by an inner voice that told me I had a destiny. All I needed to do was trust myself and keep my pedal to the metal. Yes, money is a way to keep score and survive, but it has never been my reason for being. There are better ways to keep score, you write, maintaining purpose in life, an abundance of close friends, and a wonderful family tops the scorecard. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's hard to add to that, but I'm going to ask you to do that, and especially, I mean, for everyone in the audience, we all need to hear this, but Heritage benefits by having a plurality of employees who are under 30 or 35. Washington, D.C., Capitol Hill is dominated by young people. We need more of them in office, frankly. I know you're not offended by that. But what, what, what advice would you give to people who are saying, man, Harold, the American dream's dead? Yeah. It's simple. Uh, follow your destiny. Uh, my destiny, at, uh, I don't know uh, why, but you know, you know what it is? I did. Uh, and it was fairly simple. With me, I could get almost euphoric about what I need to do. I felt it that strong. And, uh, you know, you could just get cold chills about, wow, I'm going to do this, you know. Uh, and I didn't have anything. You know, but you knew it was possible. I knew it was possible. I could, I could tell. 
somehow, some, somehow, if somebody had a hand on me, maybe, but I knew it. I could feel it. And, you know, hopefully, hopefully other people that read that book can do the same thing. One of your daughters wrote an afterword to the book, which in addition to the book is what you wrote is really poignant. And I'm just going to read a paragraph here, which as a father of daughters, I think resonated with me, but also having gotten to know you as an acquaintance over the years, I, I, can, I can see this in you and in a lot of men and women who are of your generation who provide lessons for those of us who are younger to follow. But this is what she writes. Dad has always understood his purpose on this earth is greater than himself. He was raised with a strong faith, sometimes that guides him still today. Something that guides him still today, not sometimes. He is ultimately a producer. It's the most philanthropic thing he can do. He doesn't take lightly the responsibility he has to provide for his employees. And through the success of his business and his employees, he can have the greatest societal impact. When dad gives back, he does so with purpose. A little contribution to everything doesn't have the same impact as does giving back to what you're passionate about. That seems like that's a vital part of how you go about life. It is, uh, you know, uh, you know, the big thing, try to find uh, things that are mostly impactful that you, that you care about, really care about. And so we've tried to do that. Um, our foundation based, uh, had three pillars. Uh, you know, energy advocacy, that's one of Makes them. Makes sense. Uh, that's a big one. Uh, education, uh, you know, uh, you know that, that's what helped uh, me break the poverty cycle <laughs> uh, that our family was in. And uh, so that, that's real important. So we've been involved in that, of course. And uh, the other one's health. It means so much to all of us. And some of it is... Uh, is, is you know it's kind of easy to you know uh, with some of the uh, main disease uh, areas of cancer, heart or whatever, um, Alzheimer's even. But the one that uh, I chose was diabetes. Uh, affects so many people, and uh, yet it was so unpopular. Uh, nobody wanted to deal with it. Uh, nobody wanted to put money into it. You know, there wasn't a, a procedure attached to it to make doctors a lot of money, so they didn't want much to do with it either. Uh, so, you know, we said, wow, that's one we need to tackle. We hopefully do something about it. And so some, I'm, I'm glad we did. Uh, when you look at this past year and, uh, uh, you know, by making the public aware of some of the uh, unjust things like the three pharmaceuticals that had kept the patent for a hundred years, uh, you know, on insulin that was given to them for a dollar. Um, but they kept that patent by uh, moderating a little bit with the insulin to where they could keep that monopoly up there until we brought that to the attention of the American public. Uh, they wasn't going to give it up. But they finally did. They finally started moderating, got it down to where people could afford it. But poor people was having to ration insulin. Now you think about it. You need four vials a month if you're type one. We, some of us trying to get by on one or two of those vials. So part of your body's dying, okay? That's not a pretty thing. But that, that's what was going on and, and until Harry Smith and I got on TV and talked about that and made it public, that would have probably continued. Well, God bless you for that work. And it's a, a lesson, too, about uh, how much that industry in particular, the, the big boys in that industry in particular, collude with government against the healthy quality of life for, for Americans. So thank you for your, your courage there. Ho hopefully we can find a cure. So, Getting closer. Yeah. Research is going on. Got a lot of good things happening. And at Oklahoma State University, of all places, is that right? Yeah, we're... Uh, uh, I say that as a longhorn, you know, yeah, there's a little bit of a jab there. <laughs> Oklahoma University, uh, they're in Oklahoma City, uh, so Oklahoma. No, God, so, God bless them. So one last question for me, Harold, and then uh, we'll go to the audience. I really love this paragraph in your book. 
Another trait, you write, that seems to be innate to successful people is impatience. I've heard people in my company joke, there's a clock and then there's ham time. <laughs> yes, I like to move quickly. Tomorrow misses today's possibilities. My colleague Diana, when she, she brought me my copy of the book, had this tagged and said, Kevin, we all here talk about Kevin time at Heritage. You're going to really love this. And I think we've got to move fast because the country's on fire, which is why we try to move fast at Heritage. But talk to us about ham time, especially for people who are you know, maybe early in their careers trying to figure out their daily discipline at work and how you get things done. Well, you know, first of all, uh, to get where we need to go, I had a lot of changing to do and myself, uh, so uh, personal improvement. And so that happened had to happen all quickly. And uh, then other things, in business, uh, you get a, a really brilliant idea about a prospect that you really uh, figured out all of a sudden, kind of a breakthrough. And just know that everybody else is having that same idea. <laughs> if you don't tie it up, they're going to. Uh, so I've been beat to uh, some really good ideas. Uh, just uh, you know, by a few few days, few weeks, few hours. Uh, so, anyway, we try to instill ham time and and uh, our executives and have got a great uh, leadership team at Continental. They're just terrific and and what they do and and uh, you know they make it happen quickly and they understand ham time. Thanks <laughs> <laughs> for that explanation. So. We'll, we'll get into audience questions. We'll take questions both from those of you who are here in person and also my aforementioned colleague, Diana. We'll have some questions coming in from our virtual audience, but we will start with questions here in person. Gentlemen, all the way in the back row and just wait for the microphone if you don't mind. Hi, thank you so much for, for coming. I'm Richard Stern, the director of the Budget Center here at Heritage. I, I'm moved by your dedication, the faith, and the, the importance you put in it. I wanted to ask you what you thought the integral relationship was between not just faith at the individual level, but throughout a society, creating a society that's driven to innovation. And, and I wanted to ask if you think that the left's kind of focused attacks on our faith institutions have been part of why we've seen sluggish growth over the last generation and increasing economic frustration. He's a smart guy. He is, man. I tell you what, he had about four questions in there, and I think yeah, I was, might be able to answer it. It's pretty slick. It'd take you and me about five minutes to ask that question. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> well, first of all, innovation uh, is a, a great thing that uh, you never know where it'll come from. But uh, you know, whether it's the simple things like we did, and being out there as a, a working on a rig, and uh, you know, from a driller standpoint. Uh, you know, but uh, absolutely, innovation has driven America. Uh, you know, the uh, uh, you, you take just what we did. You know, it, it has driven much of the economy by putting a couple million people to work. Uh, you know, so it's been big. Uh, tax policy, absolutely. I mean, we've seen all kind of <clears throat> uh, different things occur with tax policy and. It can drive it up. It can also drive it down. And, uh, you know, too much taxes uh, piled on business uh, uh, it can get to the point that it drowns them and, and discourages people, all the entrepreneurs and innovators, uh, from taking those chances and risks that uh, provide all the growth and growth possibilities. So good question. You're exactly right. Thank you. Yeah, great, great exchange. Thanks for that response, Harold. Diana? Microphone's coming your way, ma'am. This question is from Lou Pugliarisi of the Energy Policy Research Foundation. Among many in US government, there is a view that hydraulic fracturing was the result of government research and the Department of Energy project funding. What is your perspective on that? OK. The uh, question was, there's some theory that it was government research that created hydraulic fracturing. Okay. What's your response? Well, there's been a limited amount of uh, government research that uh, people used. I think George Mitchell talked about uh, what he, you know, how he used some funding uh, under some grants uh, by DOE. Uh, 
uh, to improve fracturing technology uh, within the Barnett Shale. And he did, uh, I, I know for a fact that he did, I'm familiar with that. Uh, basically they were working with uh, vertical wells uh, and I think most of us in the industry had known that you could get gas from shales. Uh, uh, in fact, we had perforated some highly shaley sands uh, that really didn't produce much from the sands, but we got some shale gas <laughs> as a result. But uh, George, uh, through those grants, uh, kept working with those shales to produce gas economically from the Barnett, from some vertical wells. And I know that happened. The real breakthrough came uh, when uh, Devon uh, bought Mitchell Energy and their uh, properties in North Texas and uh, started working with horizontal drilling uh, in the Barnett. And that really, really was a key to turn on that development. And, and, and it became uh, big production. A yeah, huge growth in production. Huge right? growth in production and uh, came from that. So Larry Nichols and his crew did a great job. I think George may have drilled a few uh, horizontal wells uh, there before uh, Larry bought that, but primarily it was. So anyway, the idea that government brought around this energy renaissance, uh, I've heard of Obama uh, take full credit for that. Y'all believe that? <laughs> President mm. Biden cured cancer last week. So <laughs> anything's possible. We uh, we talked to Obama. I'll go in just a little quick. Uh, we talked to Obama. I want him to know uh, just for sure that horizontal drilling uh, very well could give us energy independence in America. And so in a, in a uh, casual gathering by the Giving Pledge people, I made sure that he knew that. And he told me, he said, well, he said, Secretary Chu has told me that uh, they're, they're going to invent a battery uh, that's going to be the key to transportation in the future. So anyway, that was his response. Don't hold In the next five years. Yeah, right. Yeah, that was 2012. Okay. We could just talk about these claims the left has made about environmental destruction and this, this battery, which seems like such a fiction. But we'll move on. Uh, we'll take a question on this side. So, gentlemen there, um, microphone's coming your way. Keep your, here you go. Keep your hand raised. Hi, uh, Chris Knight with Argus Media. Uh, you reportedly told uh, former President Donald Trump that you wouldn't be supporting him this election cycle, that uh, that you're donating instead to Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley. What caused you to make that decision? And have you had any discussions with DeSantis or Haley about energy policy that you found particularly appealing that made you want to support them? Yes, there'd been uh, uh, several uh, uh, people write about the conversation that I had with Mr. Trump. And uh, my concern is, you know, the, his electability in the general. And, uh, and turn attention to that uh, to see, to make sure that we don't wind up same place we did last time. If it's close, guess who's gonna win? They, they did last time. Might not have been un, quite fair, uh, but that's what happened and, you know, leave that up to everybody's own opinion. But anyway, that's uh, what I talked to him about was, you know, what's he gonna do to uh, you know, make make sure that he can win the general. If if he if he wins a primary, you have to have to turn attention to the the general election. So that was uh, that was my concern that I discussed with him. They even discussed uh, uh, that he, you know, with his base, he's got a powerful base uh, that perhaps he could uh, you know play the role of kingmaker. Uh, you know, uh, help somebody else uh, through the use of his base of support. So we've had uh, several conversations and that people have talked about. Thank you. Thank you. Gentlemen there on that side. 
Mr. Ham, again, thank you very much for coming. Thank you. Uh, looking at the early days of the industry and the whole revolution that you were bringing about, what were some of the initial inklings that your thesis was correct? And what did you see? And was it a question of seeing what the initial results of, of what you saw as possible? Or was it a question of appreciating the significance? So uh, it's, it's a question of m taking advantage of uh, something that you see. And was it a question of appreciating what you saw or the significance of what you saw? Yeah, good question. Uh, <clears throat> I've thought about that as I look back upon it uh, all these years later. Uh, first of all, uh, I, was, I was so impressed by what I was seeing uh, in the industry at that time. Uh, you know, surrounded by a, a lot of different people that had ever been around. And just my initial research into it, uh, how much uh, it, had, it had contributed, you know, to the overall growth of Oklahoma and that, I, that I was aware of. And, you know, what, what it could do in, in the future, I, I think was, wow, just uh, felt like it was uh, uh, fantastic. I want to be a part of it. So I think it's a little bit of both of those things. Uh, so good question. Thank you for it. Probably just vital in addition to your own knowledge and gut instincts to have a great team around you, which I know is another, another principle of yours and, and successful leaders, but love that question. Diana, I know you've got a virtual question for us. It's difficult to understand the massive preoccupation and commitment to net zero 2050, which yields very high costs and little environmental benefits. Domestic oil and gas production is a primary instrument of wealth creation and national power for the United States. Can you explain the misplaced focus on net zero? Well, I don't know that anybody can explain <laughs> all so the kind, net, Harold. net zero <laughs> emphasis uh, that's out there. Uh, a lot of people just get caught up in it and make statements that we're going to be net zero in 30, 40 years and try to get there. Um, some people are serious about it. Um, you know, it's, um, it's possible to, by, uh, in some instances, to be net zero are offset completely. Uh, it's like the project that we're involved in uh, with the carbon capture uh, from ethanol plants and underground sequestration of that carbon, which would more than offset our production. Uh, so, yeah, you could be net zero. And, you know, you think, wow, that here you are, an oil company, you're hel helping the agriculture community and uh, why did you do that is the obvious question uh, because it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do is to dump all that carbon out uh, as it's going on today. Why not capture it? Why not uh, sequester it underground, you know, where it's safe for thousands of years? Great question. Forever. Yes, ma'am, in the front, the microphone's going to come down your way momentarily. Um, Helen Teplitska, the global management partner of Imnix Group. Mr. Roberts, thank you so much for hosting this. This Pleasure. is really amazing. And uh, Mr. Ham, um, you mentioned you're not about money. What was your mission to take the company private? Um, this is one side of the question. And second is how can those of us who truly believe in your mission to really carry the truth and help um, destroy the lies and all the false flair about um, shale industry and energy independence, help um, compel those who are currently misled because there is so much lies, particularly among the young generations, university campuses. How can we become a part of your effort for the Domestic Energy Producers Alliance, because I, I know you need a lot of help. Okay. Thank you. Well, uh, first of all, I'll talk about uh, the going private. Uh, 
And we, uh, it served our purpose to be a public company uh, when we went public in 2007. And we knew we was on to something huge uh, there in the Bakken, and, and the only way we could develop that was to uh, have a, a big influx, influx of uh, capital. And so we could, we could do that uh, by going public, selling part of the company to the public. And so we did that, and that's why we went. We, uh, and, and you got paid to be public companies back then. Uh, you know, uh, the multiple, uh, for instance, uh, value uh, was eight to nine times, uh, you know, the forward uh, EBITDA, uh, forward earnings. Uh, we went private when you no longer got paid for it after COVID-19. Uh, suddenly, your valuation was down to three or four times, uh, and people kind of, you know, had... And that's another important reason for writing this book right now. Had finally got thought that, well, oil and gas companies, you know, no need for them anymore, right? Uh, wrong. Uh, so, and the valuation got down to three or four. You didn't get paid to be uh, public and go through the headaches of uh, being being a public company. So, we uh, we we bought back the 16% we didn't own. And uh, so it was pretty simple, which gave us about 20% more time to run the company, which is huge. Uh, so that was, that was a good thing uh, in that regard. So uh, the last part of her question of, oh, how can y'all help? Yes. Yeah, how can, how can... Stakeholders, because uh, I think each of us is a stakeholder organization. Absolutely. The narrative is false and it's dominating in the public domain. So how can we become engaged, for example, in the DEPA, in order to make sure that we can strengthen your voice and actually deliver the message and return the minds to the right place? Yeah, I'll, I'll restate that for the audience, especially yeah. online. Great question. Thank you. It for, is a great for question. How can we help? Everyone's a stakeholder, especially given the aforementioned narrative, which has sort of overrun the truth, the, the reality of the situation. Good Thank question. You. Absolutely. That's, that's a terrific question. Every one of us has, has a stake in this game. Uh, every one of us can be a player. Uh, you know, you need to voice your opinions. Diane's such a good example here on the front row. Uh, you have a great testimony uh, about the industry and, and uh, you know, what, what it is, what it means, and, you know, the reality of the situation. Uh, every one of us plays such a big part. Jerry, I see him back there with DEPA. You know, we're out there every day writing articles, writing, uh, 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 doing the news, uh, different things about uh, the reality of energy uh, uh, industry in America and, and what what is right and what's wrong and and sometimes it's it's hard to hard to gather all the detail of the last policy that's passed uh, by the folks that don't like you uh, you know and and the impact uh, that it's going to have on a consuming public that don't even know about it. Uh, you know, that, that uh, they slide in under the guise of some bill or the other. So each one of us uh, being on the guard and uh, weighing in every chance you get with your neighbors, uh, you know, uh, talking to the folks in your sphere of influence is so important, uh, you know, to be a, be a part of that. So thank you. And I'll, I'll piggyback on that very briefly. Harold's obviously the, the expert, but from the standpoint of just messaging on policy, I'm often confronted with the question of that Diana, our other colleagues who work on energy policy, from people who say, in, in my circle of friends, no one wants to hear this story. And I, I think using good rhetoric, which is usually a question, not a leading question, you want to establish a good rapport with someone who's skeptical. And there's a lot of skepticism about the reality on this issue, as you know. 
But in order to ask the good questions that lead to a good conversation, you have to be based in facts. And that's where Diana and, and our team, and there are obviously other people in the audience and people who aren't here who do a good job of that. But that's the key thing, is, is to have those three or four or five facts that probably people who are innocently buying into an ill-intentioned narrative don't know. Because our schools are terrible, especially on this issue and, and other issues. This, by the way, is why we have to end the US Department of Education. <clears throat> <laughs> I told my colleagues at Heritage every time we do an event, regardless of the topic, I'm mentioning that until it's gone. All right, Diana, do you have a virtual question for us? Yes, microphone's coming your way. What do we need to do to educate the public about the dangers of China and losing energy independence to a country that's not friendly to us, especially after Russia just cut off the oil to Europe? Well, it, it should be obvious now with, uh, you know, this last example, how, how important our national security is. Uh, and energy independence uh, gives us that, and we, we can't fritter that away. But uh, China, uh, you know, they, they have their own deal. And their deal is not your deal. Uh, you know, this is a communist country. Uh, and let me tell you, they, they're steeped in communism, and it's, it's not uh, democracy uh, at all. Those people are oppressed. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's not a good situation uh, by any, any imagination. And any time that we think they're our friends, uh, look out. It's, it's, it's going to be too bad. So. The, it's, uh, Many of us have been duped by that for about 10 years. Yeah, we could, yeah. we've been duped, and uh, we, we certainly have. And uh, Z is, uh, you know, he's meeting with the wrong folks. He's supporting the wrong folks. Uh, you know, he's an anarchist, and he's not, not our type, type people at all. So. By the way, anyone interested, uh, yes, thanks for the response and the great question. Anyone interested in this should go to a, a paper that almost all of my policy colleagues at, at Heritage had a hand in, and that's winning the new Cold War with China. A uh, substantial part of that is what we do on, on energy policy. All right, time for a question here. Yes, sir. Uh, could you please comment a bit on the Appalachian Pipeline? What was the real fundamental business op opposition and the impact of finishing it? Well, it's all about consumers. Uh, and, you know, that, that's the benefit of all consumers get this pipeline laid. Uh, and certainly those people that are on propane uh, or other fuels that, that need this uh, natural gas. Uh, so politically, that's why we're shut down. You know, all, all the lawsuits from Sierra Club, everybody else that, that shut this down uh, because they didn't want to complete. But it goes back to a fundamental thing that they figured out. It's been, been something in prog progress a long time about how to, how to close down oil and gas altogether. And if they could do it through pipelines, I don't care if it's natural gas or crude oil or whatever, eliminate our ability to get our product to market, well, then they, they put you out of business. So that's what it really comes down to. And, uh, and then we had an administration that wouldn't stand up for the letter of the law and, and go ahead and push it through. Because, you know, it's a lawful thing uh, that they, these folks, they made application, they followed the law, and, you know, it was blocked till now. It's, uh, it's unfortunate. Uh, we, we saw the thing, same thing in, in North Dakota with crude oil line, and it's finally passed. But it took a, took a long time, and, and it hurts consumers. It hurts the consuming public. You know, it holds up prices of product. And those interludes, consumers really, really are, are hurt. Young lady here had a question. We'll go there before we take a virtual question from Diana. Thank you. Hi, Karen Harned. I'm proudly from Oklahoma, and I thank you for what you've done for our state. Um, I wanted to ask, though, we just talked about the uh, pipeline and the regulators with that. When you were 
doing your innovative technology, were there regulatory roadblocks you experienced then, or were you ahead of the regulators when you were doing this? Uh, good question, and uh, yeah, there was a lot of roadblocks. I mean, uh, you know, the whole world, uh, it, and, and uh, all the oil fields everywhere in the world, North Dakota or Montana or even Oklahoma, uh, that uh, basically was set up for uh, vertical wells, uh, spacing units. And so you'd have 40 acres uh, spacing for oil or 80 acres spacing for gas or whatever they... Suddenly, in order to drill a low lateral horizontals, uh, you needed 1,280 acres spacing for for those units. And and so we had doubters within our camps that you'll never get that done. And, but we did. We, we had a wonderful uh, uh, North Dakota Industrial Commission. Uh, and in Montana, we had a, an energy uh, commission there for oil and gas that saw the need for it and changed the spacing. And, and so we did it uh, really kind of systematically and got it, got it done okay. And it's worked beautifully uh, and wonderfully well. And it's been such a boon to uh, landowners, royalty owners. Uh, you know, you see these people that their first check's a million dollars. Uh, not a bad deal. <laughs> uh, so it, it worked wonderfully well. One of the, the toughest, uh, States to get a long lateral horizontal bill was actually Oklahoma. Uh, so we, we had some small operators that, you know, came in and uh, in opposition to it. And we worked five years to get that changed, but finally did. And, and now, you know, Oklahoma's done equally as well with production. So it, it, sometimes you just have to have faith, work through the system, and get it done. Unless you have uh, opposition from, like in New York, for instance, when uh, Governor Cuomo decides that there's not going to be any horizontal drilling in, in New York. So we have landowners that join their neighbors, brothers, in Pennsylvania. These brothers in Pennsylvania got wealthy. These brothers in New York didn't get anything. Uh, which is unfair, unfortunate. So, anyway, very good question. Diana, you get the last question. Thank you. Uh, your company pioneered horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing, making America energy independent. Why haven't other countries done the same? Is it that they lack the geological formations? Is it that they lack the technology? or is it regulatory burdens? Why don't other countries want to copy the United States in this manner? Uh, good question, and uh, other, other uh, countries do uh, want to copy it, but we, we have, a, America is great. Uh, I'll just tell you right now, it's just a great uh, uh, nation. Uh, we have land ownership uh, that, uh, you own the subsurface if you own the, the surface. That's, that's the way it was. And uh, so it's great. Uh, the uh, other, other nations, some other nations, a lot of other nations, you, you don't have that situation. So government can block you. Uh, and uh, so you have these political or uh, socioeconomic uh, political decisions made. Uh, that 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 won't let them develop it. Uh, like in, for instance, there's a Bakken lookalike in 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 the Paris Basin. Uh, can you develop that? No. Uh, you know the French government uh, owns the the subsurface, and uh, you know some of them don't want that to happen. And so there there they are. And uh, not doing it well. There's other nations that have uh, similar situations. You know that uh, a, a great uh, in Argentina, for instance, there's a, a huge 
what would be a huge horizontal play, and, and it's seeing some development, but it's taken forever to get it done because of government uh, intervention. So that's, that's a primary purpose. And the combination of America's natural resources, men and women with initiative. It's like Daniel. Education system, it's, it's, it's unique. Daniel Webster, uh, one, of, one of his quote was, let us go forth and develop a nation's resources. Uh, still hangs in, in the chambers of Congress. And it was, it was a very wise decision. Everything natural comes from the earth. Oil and gas does well. Well, one bit of housekeeping before we wrap up. So when we conclude here in a little bit, Harold has very graciously agreed to sign some books. The, we've got several dozen books out there, first come, first serve. I know that you'll abide the rule of law and not rush out there like mad men and mad women. <laughs> it's America after all, you're here. And, and also, in addition to the, the book that's out there for you, we believe in, in feeding you, sustaining your energy. So there's, there's lunch out there. Most importantly, one of the most important parts of our culture at Heritage is just the camaraderie of taking some time and, and visiting, especially amid all these challenges we have. So avail yourself of all of those things and, and thank you for being part of this. Those of you who joined online, thanks for, for joining online. But most of all, I'll conclude by saying to the one, one of the great patriots of our age, Mr. Harold Hamm, thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you.